All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael, and today we're going to be talking about the response of the international community to the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. Last year, the United Nations Human Rights Council began an independent investigation in Venezuela, a fact-finding mission to determine the extent of human rights abuses in the country. A year later, a few weeks ago as of recording, the fact-finding mission published what they found a 411-page report describing in excruciating detail the human rights abuses we've spoken about throughout this podcast, including thousands of cases of torture and extrajudicial executions carried out by Venezuelan security forces. This report marks the first time that the United Nations officially recognizes that the regime of Nicolas Maduro is responsible directly for crimes against humanity in Venezuela. These crimes against humanity are the basis of a request made by interim president Juan Guaido in a speech during this year's United Nations General Assembly just several weeks ago. This request is the activation of the responsibility to protect, a United Nations doctrine that authorizes intervention in a country by the international community, even militarily. So what exactly is the responsibility to protect? Can this doctrine be the solution that finally allows the international community to come together and put a stop to the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela? Joining me to discuss today is Elizabeth Primendorfer, Senior Human Rights Officer at the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. Her focus is on both Burundi and on Venezuela. So her knowledge of the country and the international legal precedent behind the responsibility to protect makes her quite literally the perfect person to ask these very important questions. She joins us now from Geneva, Switzerland. So Elizabeth, welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Hi, Rafael. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's wonderful to be here. And I'm really looking forward to the discussion with you. Mm -hmm. Likewise, my pleasure. So let's first get started with your background and what you do. Tell us a little bit about what exactly is the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. Absolutely. Thanks, Rafael. The Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect, the organization that I work for, is an international NGO. We are based in New York and in Geneva. We were established in 2008, which is three years after the adoption of the principle of R2P at the 2005 World Summit. Uh, and we were established by a number of supportive governments and leading figures from the human rights field. Um, this includes the former UN Secretary General um, Kofi Annan. It also includes the former uh, Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans. And it also includes a number of the world's leading international NGOs, including Human Rights Watch uh, and the International Crisis Group. I would divide the work at the Global Center into perhaps three interrelated but distinct areas. The first one is that we engage in advocacy around specific crises where we see a risk of or ongoing atrocities. And doing so, we try to influence decision makers to act to prevent mass atrocity crimes. So we work very closely with governments, regional organizations, the UN Security Council and Human Rights Council and the UN Secretariat. So we provide, in a way, uh, policymakers with advice and we help to mobilize meaningful action. In that regard, we are currently actively monitoring around 20 country situations around the world where we see a serious concern or imminent risk of atrocity crimes 
or where we in fact witness ongoing atrocities. Secondly, uh, we conduct in-depth research and analysis for policymakers on the responsibility to protect. And we explain what it means to apply an atrocity lens to crisis situations. The third aspect of our work, I would perhaps um, call it, you know, it's, it's, it's happening on an institutional level, so to say. Um, what that means is that we are closely involved in building uh, dedicated institutions and capacities at a national, a regional and an international level to effectively respond to the threat of mass atrocity crimes. And to give you just one example, um, it includes the uh, global network of R2P focal points, which is a network of around 60 governments from all around the world that have appointed a senior government official in their ministries, which focuses on R2P at a national and international level. So those are the three uh, you know, areas of our work, to put it um, quite broadly. Um, and this is the way in which we engage um, with different mechanisms to respond to atrocity crimes. Excellent. Now, before we get to specifically the responsibility to protect the R2P, as it's known for short, tell me a little bit about what your institution has found about Venezuela. You mentioned before that you are monitoring actively a series of countries, I believe it was 20 or so. What, based on your findings and your research, have you discovered about Venezuela? What particularly makes the situation in Venezuela stands out as it relates to atrocities being committed? Sure, this is a great question, Rafael. Um, the Global Center has been monitoring and has been, um, you know, working on the situation in Venezuela for quite a while. Um, quite a while means a couple of years. Uh, we have seen, of course, over the past years, a number of um, reports by regional organizations, international organizations, but of course also incredible work done, uh, most importantly, by human rights activists on the ground um, on ongoing violations and abuses of human rights. And um, the reason why the Global Center is working on, on the case of Venezuela specifically is because we do believe that these violations and abuses follow oftentimes a specific pattern, and as such, they may amount to uh, possible crimes against humanity, which is, of course, up for a legal mechanism to establish. Um, but we are very concerned um, about policies um, which, which are in place, um, some of them at the highest level of government, which again indicate a pattern, which indicate serious ongoing uh, violations and abuses by security forces, by other state agents and, and those affiliated. This is why um, we have been advocating mainly um, at the Human Rights Council in Geneva to respond to these ongoing violations and abuses and to most importantly ensure independent UN investigations uh, to shed a light on, uh, on these patterns, to contribute to accountability and to also establish a, you know, accurate um, historic record of, of what is happening. One of those published series that indicates these atrocities that amount to crimes against humanity, as I mentioned in the beginning, is this independent fact-finding mission report that was first conducted in September of last year. So just to recap for my listeners, the United Nations Human Rights Council established this independent fact-finding mission on Venezuela last year. And for a year, they investigated what was purportedly alleged human rights violations committed in the country since 2014. 
Now, the findings, as I mentioned, were made public, and these atrocities go beyond anecdotal evidence. It was a 411-page report that reviewed a series of cases of human rights violations. So, Elizabeth, if you could uh, talk to us about that report and anything that you saw that particularly stood out. Absolutely. Um, I want to start perhaps by um, emphasizing from from the very beginning that the the fact-finding mission for Venezuela, which, as you mentioned, Rafael, was created and mandated by the Human Rights Council in Geneva, is an independent United Nations investigation. So the investigations have been conducted by leading human rights experts uh, who are fully independent from any political dynamics which have taken place in Venezuela, at the Human Rights Council or elsewhere. And it's important for me to emphasize this because, of course, these findings um, of such such investigations always run the risk of, of being politicized. And I think we have to be very clear that the fact-finding mission is not a political mechanism. It is an independent investigative body mandated to document violations and abuses and to provide recommendations for accountability. Um, the findings, I believe, really speak for itself. Um, there are, you know, reasonable grounds to believe that the violations and abuses may in fact amount to crimes against humanity and that there is a clear state policy at hand, which is uh, implying leading figures within the government of, of Nicolas Maduro. I believe that the report, you know, it really sheds a light on the experience of thousands of victims and their families. And I really believe that this information, this report, it can be of tremendous importance for um, contributing to accountability, justice, truth, and one day, hopefully, healing. So I am really convinced that this report um, can and, and should be a very first step to you know, contribute to justice, holding perpetrators accountable, and um, hopefully, and in the very best of scenarios, prevent the recurrence of atrocity crimes. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that were in that report, and for my listeners, I'm going to provide a link to the report itself. It's long, but there's a summary that you can read. And I just want to give a fair warning. Some of the accounts are just, they're harrowing. Everything from detentions for political motives, all the way to just unspeakable, inconceivable acts of deprivations of physical liberty, acts of torture, rape, other forms of sexual violence, arbitrary detentions, extrajudicial executions, forced disappearances, and just a series, a myriad of other inhumane acts. And I want to ask Elizabeth, what does the report say about the complicitness of the Maduro regime? To what extent were the members of Maduro's inner circle involved in these crimes that were committed? Sure. Um, as you've mentioned, Rafael, I mean, the report is uh, incredibly, incredibly difficult to read. Um, it, it's, it's a really, you know, horrendous um, uh, testimony of, of what is happening, what has happened, but what, of course, continues to happen in the country um, in, in terms of human rights violations, but also, of course, in terms of the humanitarian emergency and crisis um, that, that we are looking at. 
um, the report is, you know, um, quite um, clear in um, outlining, I would say, um, that these are not random uh, acts. These are not acts done by rough elements of the security forces or of the intelligence uh, agencies, but that there is an indication that there is a state policy. Um, to commit these violations and abuses. They uh, are, in fact, widespread and systematic. And the crimes that are being committed, um, this is something that is happening with the knowledge and oftentimes also with, you know, instructions from senior government uh, officials, senior members, uh, leading figures in the intelligence, in the security forces. And I think that um, again, as an independent investigation, um, this fact-finding mission has tried on multiple occasions to actually um, talk and engage with the government. So as an independent investigation, these findings, I think, are um, really alarming, and I think that they allow us uh, to, to better understand what is happening at the moment in the country. But also what this report really does is it actually provides a very, very long list of recommendations to the government of Venezuela, to the government under Nicolas Maduro, on what has to change, measures that have to be taken now in order to ensure accountability, ensure investigations, um, remove from office, uh, you know, perpetrators um, that are that are in, um, complicit in, in the commission of these crimes. And so, you know, in addition to giving us all this information, it also plays a very, very important role in making us understand, you know, what has to change now uh, and which measures does the government have to put in place um, to, um, to address these findings. Now, I actually want to get to the response of the regime of Nicolas Maduro themselves. So as you might guess, listeners, the regime didn't take too kindly to the report. So could you tell us what exactly was the response of the regime? Did they accept it? Did they admit that they were complicit in any of these crimes? Or what was their response? Sure. Um, you know, it's been um, very, very difficult um, from the beginning. Um, and if I may go a bit back in time, because I think it helps for the context. Um, I, I think it was... Uh, <laughs> perhaps expected uh, from the beginning, from the moment that this fact-finding mission was established, that there would be uh, no cooperation and engagement from the government um, of Nicolas Maduro. So even in the negotiation process in Geneva a year ago, in September last year, when civil society organizations were also pushing for this mechanism to be established, uh, it was very, very clear that this is met with strong resistance. Um, from the government to get such an investigation going. Back in September last year, the government, together with the government of Iran, for example, ran a competing resolution which tried to prevent such a mechanism to be established. So this shows you that, you know, it's not just the findings that the government has, um, has rejected, it's the entire mechanism as such. So it perhaps isn't uh, much of a surprise that um, the government has, you know, as soon as the report came out, been very, very clear that it doesn't accept the fact-finding mission and doesn't accept the findings. Um, this is something that, um, you know, was in a way, it, it, it didn't come of a surprise. I think what we have to be 
um, careful about, and I, I mentioned this earlier, is this politicization um, of the of the fact finding mission. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it is an independent body that has been conducting independent investigations. It has reached out to the government multiple times. Um, it has conducted. Uh, it has monitored, investigated, reported in, a, in an impartial manner. The commissioners have been very, very clear on this um, at all times. So um, the findings may not be accepted by the government of Venezuela, but I think they really, again, speak for themselves. And even if the government, uh, you know, doesn't accept these findings and there's not going to be any legal consequences as such. But I think it shows us, you know, what is happening at the moment and what needs to happen to address to address these findings. You're absolutely correct, Elizabeth. The report lists upwards of 60 recommendations for the state itself whether or not the state is going to accept these recommendations and comply remains to be seen. As a Venezuelan, obviously I'm very biased and I will tell you that they most likely will brush off these recommendations and continue to operate as so. But there are recommendations for the international community to respond in kind. I think there needs to be a response that is commensurate with the laundry list of atrocities that have been committed by this regime that include possibly the responsibility to protect. So that creates a perfect segue into speaking about the R2P itself. So let's move on to that. Several weeks ago, as I mentioned, interim president Juan Guaido spoke to delegates of the United Nations General Assembly, or at least the ones who tuned into his speech, because officially the United Nations still recognizes the Maduro regime. So Nicolas Maduro himself spoke at the General Assembly, virtually, of course. But in Juan Guaido's aside speech to the host of uh, a bevy of nations that still recognize him as the interim president, Guaido formally requested the activation of the UN's responsibility to protect to rescue Venezuela. And if I may, I'd like to quote from the speech in which Juan Guaido said, Honorable Mr. Guterres, who is the head of the United Nations, as you indicated in 2018 during the General Assembly debate on the responsibility of states to protect, Fundamental principles mean little if they are not applied when they are most needed. Today in Venezuela is when they are most needed. So before we move on to the applicability of this doctrine in Venezuela, I'd like to talk first about the responsibility to protect. So if you could, please explain to us, Elizabeth, what exactly is the R2P? Yeah, the responsibility to protect R2P is a political commitment by states to protect populations from what we call atrocity crimes. And with that, we are referring to genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. So this is, you know, what when you hear mass atrocity crimes, atrocities, atrocity crimes, it is these four um, distinct crimes that we're talking about. Now, RTP was uh, adopted, so to say, at the 2005 World Summit, which was the largest gathering of heads of state and government in history. RTP is very clearly and very concisely articulated in the outcome document of that World Summit. It's paragraphs 138 and 139. Uh, I'm not going to read them out, but let me say that in short, we usually talk about uh, pillars of RTP, which make it a bit easier to understand. 
So pillar one is that every state has the responsibility to protect its population from these atrocity crimes. And this is the key element of R2P, because it is really the primary responsibility of the state itself to protect its population. Mm -hmm. Now, the wider international community has the responsibility to encourage and assist individual states in meeting that responsibility. And this is what we often refer to as pillar two. And we talk about, you know, technical assistance and capacity building, training, development assistance. Um, there's a lot of different measures that fall under pillar two. Now there is a pillar three, uh, which is that if a state is uh, manifestly failing, unwilling or unable to protect its population, the international community uh, must be prepared to take collective action in a timely and decisive manner in accordance with the UN Charter. And I, I presume we will get to that point in a little bit, but I already want to stress that Pillar 3 includes a very large and a very, very wide variety of measures that states, the international community can take um, on a diplomatic, humanitarian uh, or, or other peaceful um, level. Correct. If I'm understanding correctly, for Pillar 3 to be activated, it's contingent on the failure of Pillars 1 and 2, and the prospect of intervention is not just military. In fact, it's seen as a measure of last resort because it needs to be after economic or other measures that might precede any sort of military action. Yeah, Rafael, this is absolutely correct. So um, precisely on your point on um, the use of force, military force, first of all, as you've pointed out um, correctly, this is a last resort measure. Um, so pillar three, we are looking at a very big you know, variety again of different coercive and non-coercive measures. And this includes you know, mediation, humanitarian assistance, protection of refugees, human rights monitoring. All of these mechanisms can be part of um, the international community upholding R2P uh, under so-called Pillar 3. Um, it's also not as if, you know, there is always a very clear line as in, you know, you have to take measure A and then you have to go to measure B. Uh, we really have to understand R2P is a political commitment of, again, a variety of measures which are very context-specific. Uh, in certain situations, uh, you know, um, you look at mediation, you look at preventive diplomacy. In others, uh, where um, atrocities are much more imminent, you perhaps may look at an arms embargo, a peacekeeping mission. So um, we really have to, uh, I think, understand and, and clarify that R2P can mean many, many different things in different contexts. There are many examples of what it means to implement R2P, um, including under Pillar 3. Um, and um, in, in that sense, perhaps I should stress that, you know, there is no such thing as, you know, activating R2P. We can uphold R2P by implementing different measures. Again, the use of force is a last resort measure, and it has to be absolutely, and in any case, in accordance with the UN Charter. That's actually what I wanted to ask, Elizabeth, in terms of the activation. So I think I might have misunderstood initially the means by which this doctrine is implemented, carried out, however you want to describe it is put into action, let's say. 
when it is done based on historical precedent, what has been the outcome in other instances where it has been used? Because I know it's been used already in several cases of mass atrocities around the world, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the responsibility to protect, again, as a, as a political commitment, as a principle or a norm, um, is something that we uh, continuously see, perhaps, if you want to say, implemented um, for atrocity situations around the world. I believe it may be useful, perhaps, for for um, you know people who are listening to give some concrete examples, because I know it's you know it can be a, a bit of an abstract conversation, and it can be a bit of a conversation where people are like, well, what does it actually mean? So if it's useful, let me let me give you some examples um, of what it means to uphold implement R2P, which we have seen, uh, let's say, in the past year only. Okay. Um, in November last year, for example, um, the UN Security Council in New York uh, renewed the mandate of the UN peacekeeping mission for the Central African Republic, uh, where we see armed groups continue to commit uh, potential atrocity crimes. Um, this peacekeeping mission is central to protecting civilians. And peacekeeping missions are a key part of, you know, R2P in action. Um, so this is something that we work on very extensively, making sure that peacekeeping missions have early warning mechanisms to respond to an imminent threat to civilians. Another example, if we stay with the Security Council, is that also this year, um, the Security Council extended an arms embargo to South Sudan, where more than a thousand people have been killed uh, in intercommunal violence since the beginning of the year. This is another example. Um, moving away from the Security Council, on a national level, we are talking about, uh, you know, um, mechanisms or, or actions like, for example, universal jurisdiction, including by Argentina, Germany, against atrocity crimes elsewhere, including in Myanmar and Syria. Another, you know, big R2P in action that comes to my mind is the recent decision um, in um, September this year by the Netherlands to actually initiate proceedings against the Syrian government for violating the torture convention. Um, in Geneva, the Human Rights Council plays a key role. For example, this year it has established a fact-finding mission for Libya to document violations and abuses. Um, last example, and perhaps you know one of the um, you know the mo one of the most historic decisions last year, uh, which which is a way of, of implementing R2P, is that the government of the Gambia actually in November last year decided to bring Myanmar before the International Court of Justice for violating the Genocide Convention. So all of these are examples of what it means to implement R2P. And the list goes on. And I think listing all of these examples, it perhaps already shows that there is really no one size fits all. And when we talk about R2P and when we talk about Pillar 3, because all these measures are actually Pillar 3 measures, we don't talk about the use of force. We talk about many, many different ways in which the international community, and by that I mean bilaterally through regional organizations and through international organizations, can respond to atrocity crimes, can ensure accountability, and can, in the best case, prevent the recurrence of atrocity crimes in a, in a given crisis. Okay. And the responsibility to protect in action, R2P in action, is that needle, let's say, is it moved or... Is the momentum 
really shifted forward by a consensus of countries or is it by a particular country by the UN itself who would you say really makes that call let's say sure well this is a this is a very big question i will try to break it down and 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 um you know make it make it very clear um so first of all again r2p is a political commitment by states heads of state and government in 2005 have adopted this this commitment it's a political commitment it's not a legal norm it's a principle and um all states again have first and foremost the responsibility to protect their populations um, the international community can assist other states, and if the state is unwilling or unable, of course, um, the international community has a responsibility to protect populations. Again, upholding R2P can take many, many different forms. It can happen um, on a national level. What I mean by that is that, um, going back to the examples of before, uh, any state could perhaps decide to initiate uh, accountability proceedings, accountability mechanisms uh, on the universal jurisdiction. States can refer situations in other countries to the International Criminal Court. Um, states can mobilize international mechanisms like the Human Rights Council, like the Security Council. Uh, the region can play an important role. I'm thinking of the European Union, for example, um, the African Union, you know. So, you know, when we talk about implementing R2P, again, we talk about many, many different measures that you can take from many, many different angles. But perhaps to go back to your question, I think that, you know, this phrase, um, activating R2P, I do understand that it is, uh, in most cases, this word activation is perhaps specifically referring to, uh, again, use of force as a last measure under Pillar 3. And so, you know, this is perhaps where we should clarify that, um, yes, it is part of the responsibility to protect, again, as a last resort measure, um, you know, when there is an authorization by the United Nations Security Council to use force. But again, this has to be in accordance with the UN Charter. R2P doesn't give you any additional justification or loophole. Um, and this is really, really fundamental to understand. Okay. Yeah, that actually, that helps a lot. Because as I'm sure you might imagine, the, the example that comes to mind for me the most, especially when it comes to the third pillar of the R2P doctrine, is its use in, uh, in Syria which began with a no-fly zone and then involved gradually NATO. So I just wanted to make sure that I understand exactly how they make that determination. Obviously, it, it requires these countries to be uh, judicious in, the, in their mentioning it or in their, uh, in their adoption of it for specific cases. What interests me insofar as the applicability of the R2P in Venezuela is the several factors that are involved. So the first thing I want to ask is how significant is the moving of the needle with Juan Guaido himself being part of an interim government that is recognized by a collection of countries, but also not recognized by a collection of others, officially calling for the adoption of the R2P? How would you say that complicates things? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And, you know, perhaps I, I don't need to touch upon it now, but we can also absolutely go back um, again to um, 
um, explaining a little bit more the third pillar, explaining a little bit more um, specifically the aspect of um, last resort measures. As you mentioned, I think in the case of Venezuela, it has come up a lot um, lately in, you know, a, a lot of different conversations. There's been calls, uh, you know, for for uh, military force. And, and I think it is actually really, really crucial to be very, very clear um, what we are talking about. Um, but before I get there, um, let me get to your question on um, Juan Guaido and, and, and the, um, the call for the adoption of the R2P mechanism. Um, first of all, I think it's important to emphasize that the international community has been very active with regards to Venezuela for many years. Um, many of the measures that we have seen and are seeing right now are actually part of upholding R2P. And so I'm just going to give you a few examples again, because I think it makes it easier to, to perhaps understand. Mm -hmm. um, targeted sanctions against um, the inner circle of uh, Nicolás Maduro, the work of the Lima Group, the International Contact Group, um, the ICC referral by a number of regional states, uh, Human Rights Council resolutions on Venezuela, but also mediation efforts by Norway and others. All of these are examples of how the international community upholds R2P and, and responds um, to the crisis. So um, it's not that the international community has been absent or has been inactive. In fact, you know, these examples really show you that uh, many, many different measures um, are being taken and that there is really high engagement uh, on a regional and on an international level. So um, in this context, you know, perhaps we should understand um, the recent um, um, conversation and, and, and also, of course, the recent statement by Juan Guaido as a reminder that the international community must continue to engage in the situation, continue to exert pressure on the government to end human rights violations and abuses, um, take necessary measures to um, allow for humanitarian relief. So um, the international community here must uphold the responsibility to protect by making it very clear to perpetrators that there will be consequences for their action. And states can be innovative, you know, for example, um, again, ensuring accountability on a national level, supporting targeted sanctions, um, exerting pressure on the government to ensure humanitarian assistance, to protect human rights activists on the ground, to continue investigations. But again, it all comes back to the fact that we are looking at a variety of measures um, which are already in place and which have to continue and intensify. And I want to um, end by also flagging that from an R2P perspective, it really doesn't, um, I would say, matter whether you support uh, Nicolás Maduro or Juan Guaido, whether you are left or right, whether you believe in the ideology of Chávez or whether you voted for Capriles. From an R2P perspective, what matters is the perspective of victims protecting populations from atrocity crimes. So R2P, you know, it's not about, um, it's not a question of ousting Maduro, installing a new government, recognizing one president or another. It's not about changing a government. It's about changing a government's behavior and preventing the commission of atrocity crimes. Okay. I, I largely agree with what you're saying. And it's, it goes back to this idea of not politicizing the doctrine itself, 
or looking at the, well, I, I suppose you could look at the criteria as maybe a litmus test for increasing responses by the international community. And you are right. There have been a series of responses by the international community that emphasize a willingness to see, I wouldn't even say an end to or a downfall of a particular entity, in this case being the regime, but more the salvation of victims, victims in a situation that are in in one sense hopeless because of just how much political will they lack themselves and how little they can stand up for themselves in the face of so much oppression and economic deprivation. But on the subject of political will, Elizabeth, one of the things that concerns me particularly is the political will to not necessarily get involved. If we look at it from a military stance, if we're looking at specifically the third pillar, obviously it's going to result in a bit of a choke point in the UN Security Council having China and Russia essentially be at odds perpetually with the United States and possibly some of its European allies to some degree. But also the degree to which that political will will be imposed in the Human Rights Council. Just recently, several days ago, China, Russia, and Cuba some of Maduro's strongest allies and found to, at varying capacities, be actively sustaining the existence of that regime have been elected to the United Nations Human Rights Council. So my question is, to what extent is their presence in the council as active supporters of politicizing this issue in the sense that they're actively supporting the existence or the continuation of this Maduro regime? How is that going to affect the R2P situation in Venezuela itself? Yeah, um, that's a, a good question. I actually feel, you know, there's there's different angles I would like to um, touch upon um, of, of what you just mentioned, um, Rafael. Perhaps before I get to the core of your question, um, if you allow me to very quickly go back to um, what you mentioned, you know, third pillar, use of force, military intervention, um, because, you know, the fact that this is a longer podcast, it gives us such an amazing opportunity to go a little bit more into detail and, and discuss these um, issues. Um, so I just want to emphasize one more time that, um, yes, pillar three of R2P, it does stipulate that um, the international community through the UN um, has the responsibility to use appropriate measures in accordance with the Charter. Um, and this includes, of course, collective action um, through the Security Council. But there are a lot of elements in here which I think are important to highlight. And again, first of all, I said this before, but the use of force has to be in accordance with the Charter, and it requires a Security Council authorization. Um, secondly, and we, I mentioned this um, before as well, it is a last resort um, measure. So these are really the basics. Um, but if you ask me for my own thoughts on, on the role of the Security Council and, you know, the, the political dynamics, let me perhaps add a few things to this. Because, first of all, even if the Security Council wouldn't be divided, which it clearly is, um, even if such an approval would be in accordance with international law, we have to be very, very clear and realistic, which is, first of all, it's absolutely unlikely that this would be the case. Um, but even if you would have such an, an authorization, are we aware of the consequences? Do we genuinely believe 
that such a use of force will change the situation without disproportionate suffering and lead to long-lasting stability. Venezuela is going through an absolutely unprecedented humanitarian crisis, and people are really struggling to survive. But do we genuinely believe that this can be sorted through military force? I, for myself, I, I really don't think so. And so any question on, uh, you know, Security Council, last resort measure, use of force, which again is extremely unlikely, it needs to be guided by the question of what will be the impact for people on the ground. And I do believe that this impact would be truly disastrous. So the chances for, for legal use of force are absolutely unlikely. And also, even if it would be legal, is it the right thing to do? And I think we have to be uh, very, very careful when we talk about last resort measures. But I know that that goes a bit away from your initial question on the dynamics in the Human Rights Council, because you are absolutely right in pointing out that the Human Rights Council as a mechanism has proven to be much more uh, you know, effective, I would say, with regards to the situation in Venezuela. So we had the, the resolution which, which created um, the fact-finding mission, um, we have, you know, a very, very active council, very active council members. Of course, membership in the Human Rights Council really, you know, impacts all of this. I mean, um, we at the Global Center have been very open and very outspoken that countries which are committing atrocity crimes themselves don't have a space on the Human Rights Council. They shouldn't be part um, of the Human Rights Council. They shouldn't be part of the decision making. So the election uh, of China, of Russia, um, and, of, and of other countries, you know, is um, not just with regards to Venezuela, but in general, it's something that is shameful. And states, when they elect members to the council, should actually not vote for countries which are committing atrocity crimes or which are impeding response to atrocity crimes elsewhere. So you are absolutely right in pointing out that um, these are developments which are really concerning. They will absolutely have an impact. Um, but again, you know, it is really up to individual member states to send a signal to not elect these uh, governments to the council and um, in the Human Rights Council to continue to push for action um, to respond to atrocity crimes through Human Rights Council investigations, uh, through monitoring, reporting, technical assistance and capacity building. Um, it's really the responsibility of, of every state uh, member or observer of the council to try and, and just be a champion for human rights. Right. Obviously, unfortunately, it could be easier said than done. The case with China, for example, having China be in the same sentence as elected almost seems like a bit of an oxymoron, um, not to get too much in the issue of China itself, but uh, some of these other countries that are part of this intergovernmental body that's responsible for the promotion and protection of human rights around the world. And I should point out that the independent fact-finding mission that started in September began prior to the election of the Maduro regime to the United Nations Human Rights Council. So what concerns me is we barely were able to escape the, that sort of fact-finding mission not being presented, although perhaps I'm also underestimating the, the democratic forces that make up also a sizable portion of that body to 
counteract those who are a bit more complacent, we can say, in not wanting to speak out. So perhaps there's a bit of a balance there that should also be acknowledged too in terms of the Human Rights Council, because there are countries in there that are genuinely trying to make a difference. It's not like 100% of them make up this sort of cabal of dictatorships that, that really sully the name of human rights. Yeah, you're absolutely right, um, Rafael. I think that, uh, you know, when you look at the, the composition of the Human Rights Council, um, there are there are also countries um, serving as members which are really championing human rights, which are championing the protection and promotion of human rights, and which are champions on, on R2P. Um, and I want to actually give an example with regards to Venezuela, because it is remarkable that uh, last year, for example, the government of Costa Rica decided to um, challenge, so to say, the uh, the candidacy of Venezuela to the HRC. Um, this is a fantastic example of a government, first of all, upholding R2P. This is part of, of upholding R2P, but also of a government, you know, to, to not be afraid, to really um, send a signal and to, to be bold and to be courageous. So I think as much as we have very, very concerning, uh, you know, trends of, of having atrocity perpetrators on human rights mechanisms being very, very active and influential on the international scene, we also see the contrary. A very good example is also, uh, you know, initiatives such as the Group of Friends of R2P. This is an intergovernmental um, um, informal network of more than 50 countries um, and the European Union, um, which are working actively on advancing R2P um, in the UN system, many of whom, uh, many, many of those members are also members of the Human Rights Council. And we see really, really important, absolutely crucial initiatives by member states coming out of the Human Rights Council, you know, establishing investigations, adopting resolutions, which really condemn atrocity crimes, which condemn perpetrators, which call for accountability. So on the one hand, um, we have to be, uh, you know, very clear. Um, we need to, in a way, challenge the current way in which um, members are elected. So states should really refrain from voting from, um, from countries that are perpetrating atrocity crimes. On the other hand, also, again, we do see really um, countries which are championing uh, R2P, championing initiatives to uh, strengthen, you know, atrocity prevention and strengthen the role of the Human Rights Council in contributing. So um, you are really right in pointing out that there's always two sides to the coin. Right. And as an aside, I should point out that some of those countries that won't defend uh, Maduro expressly are countries like Spain like Canada, like Germany, some of which actually voted to renew for another year that independent fact-finding mission. And the only countries on the Human Rights Council that voted no were Eritrea, the Philippines, and of course, the Maduro regime, Venezuela. But then you had countries that voted yes, like Argentina, uh, the ones basically that uh, make up the regional composition of uh of the south of the Western Hemisphere, uh, Central and South America. So Argentina, the Bahamas, Brazil, Chile, but also Czech Republic, Netherlands. So I think that is a bit of a, of a, um, a sigh of relief, uh, knowing that despite having China and Russia 
be the most recently onboarded members, hopefully they will be outflanked by these true supporters and allies of noble causes for human rights. Yeah, you know, um, Rafael, this is a really important point that you are making, because I think when you look at the voting uh, on Human Rights Council resolutions, when you look at the voting for the fact-finding mission for Venezuela, for example, but also others, um, this gives you a, a really good indicator um, in a sense that, you know, it is quite uh, astonishing that the countries that voted against the renewal of the fact-finding mission are actually countries which are um, allegedly perpetrating atrocities themselves. Um, so it's uh, it's something, you know, that in the end, you know, you see a pattern. Um, you also see a pattern with, with Venezuela being a member of the Human Rights Council, where the government is actually voting against initiatives which ensure investigations in other countries. You know, uh, it's not just that Venezuela voted against its own fact-finding mission, but they also try to uh, block um, action on other atrocity situations. So it also has an impact on country initiatives, on other country initiatives. Um, so I, I think that, you know, this is something, like you said, it's very important to um, highlight. It's very important to also um, give visibility to, you know, the fact that they not only block an investigation into their own country situation, but they're also really terrible in um, supporting investigations elsewhere. Of course, because there is a fear that, you know, if they support these investigations elsewhere, they will continue also for themselves. So it's... Um, it's something that you know we've we've been um, seeing on on different country situations on different resolutions being adopted, and I think it is important to give visibility to this to this issue and to look very very carefully at which countries are actually voting against investigations into atrocities and why. Right, I think that in and of itself is sort of a litmus test for whether or not the countries themselves are champions of or opponents of transparency and promoting human rights. I think the fact, as you correctly state, the fact that Venezuela or the Maduro regime is actively opposing said transparency in other countries that are accused of crimes against humanity or just general systemic human rights violations really speaks for itself. And on that note, I also want to ask as an aside, the report that came out, this independent fact-finding mission report, also calls as one of the recommendations that could be taken by the international community is the recommendation of these charges to the International Criminal Court. Now, I know this is a little bit outside of your area of expertise, but the ICC has never actually opened up a case about a country in Latin America, if I'm not mistaken. So, to what extent do you think it would be feasible for the ICC to consider these charges and take action? So um, the Office of the Prosecutor of the ICC has uh, initially uh, decided in February 2018 um, to open a preliminary examination um, of the situation in Venezuela to uh, analyze, you know, potential crimes um, since um, April 2017. And then, of course, you also had that historic referral by um, a group of regional countries a couple of months later. Um, you know, the report of the fact-finding mission, um, as such, has no legal bindings on the ICC or on the Office of the Prosecutor. 
it won't automatically lead to the opening of an investigation. However, this report and the findings constitute really important and uh, valuable information which the office of the prosecutor can use. So, you know, be that, for example, identifying testimonies, witnesses, find out where to best look for in information, evidence, you know, kind of like starting points. So it can absolutely advance uh, the work um, right now. And, and, of, and of course, it, it should be used as was a recommendation by the fact-finding mission. It should be used um, to perhaps better understand uh, where to gather evidence that is admissible in court. I want to stress something um, that I, I, I stressed um, before in, 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 in previous conversations on the role of the ICC. Um, first of all, you know, ICC cases can take a very long time. Um, and I also want to stress that it's not necessarily about opening an investigation very fast or very speedy. Um, it should really happen at a time where there is enough information on whether such an investigation is merited. But in addition to that, in addition to ICC proceedings, which again may take a long period of time, um, states should really consider taking legal action in accordance with their domestic laws uh, to contribute to accountability in addition to ICC proceedings. There's many different avenues that you can look at, you can take when it comes to um, you know, ensuring justice and accountability. Um, so again, in addition to the International Criminal Court, which is a key mechanism, plays a key role, uh, I think we can really be creative, you know, uh, which other opportunities do we have? Right. Perhaps I think it would also help if the region, well, the region's been incredibly active in trying to find a solution to the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. The other day, the Organization of American States, which is the regional body that looks at hemispheric issues, so all the way from Canada down to Argentina, they've designated a special advisor on the R2P. So it seems like there's some traction that's now starting to be gained in the region. Um, how feasible or just how promising do you think it is that there are regional bodies like the OAS that are starting to look at the R2P more seriously in the same way, for example, that they did in Kenya, where the African Union, along with efforts from the United Nations, led to a mediation and a coalition government to finally end the violence in that country. Yeah, well, um, let me begin by um, perhaps stressing or elaborating um, a bit that the, um, the OAS specifically has actually been involved in discussions on R2P for um, quite a, a period of time. Um, last year, to give you one example, the OAS has appointed a so-called focal point on R2P, becoming the second regional organization in addition to the European Union to join the global network of R2P focal points. I believe I mentioned this network in, in the introduction um, 
um, previously, the the OAS has also organized, you know, high level discussions on R2P in the past, uh, including one, for example, in which our executive director, as well as the previous UN special advisor on the responsibility to protect, have participated. So um, the decision to announce uh, a special advisor, a special advisor position, uh, it, it seems like a next follow up step to strengthen discussions on R2P at a regional level. In general, as you've mentioned, Rafael, regional organizations can really play a key role in upholding R2P by, uh, you know, understanding dynamics, exchanging best practices, and uh, perhaps lessons learned from atrocity prevention on a national and on a regional level. Um, And as you mentioned, both the OAS and the European Union, uh, including, for example, through the International Contact Group, are already very strongly involved in, um, you know, responding to the crisis in Venezuela. And they should, of course, continue to do so. But perhaps there's two uh, important points on the recent announcement of the special advisor position in general. Um, First of all, the press release by um, um, Luis Almagro made it very clear that it's not a special advisor for Venezuela. It's a special advisor for R2P, focusing on the entire region. And a lot of what is at the heart of the principle of R2P has actually formed a very you know, important component of Latin America's recent history, because the region has witnessed atrocity crimes, you know, from Argentina to Chile to Colombia, and found different ways in um, ensuring accountability and dealing with the past. So this can really form an important part of better understanding what it means to implement R2P in the Americas, on a national and on a regional level. That being said, of course, this position is seen as particularly relevant to the situation of Venezuela. And I think this is also where your question comes in, you know, of um, what is some positive change that we can perhaps um, expect. I think particularly at this moment in time where um, sometimes R2P has been misunderstood or is misunderstood as resulting in quick and rapid change on the ground, the special advisor as an authority on R2P can now really help to clarify and to amplify how we must understand R2P. What, What does it mean and what does it not mean? How can we uphold it? Um, including in the context of Venezuela, uh, which won't be uh, through ousting Maduro, through unilateral force, won't be through quickly installing a new government in Miraflores, but most likely it will be through long-term high-level diplomatic engagement by UN member states to find a peaceful solution to the crisis, holding perpetrators accountable and preventing the recurrence of atrocities. And so I think that Perhaps the most important positive change that we should look forward to um, from this announcement of the special advisor position is precisely in amplifying this message, what R2P means and and what it doesn't. That's a very good point. I think that the designation of the special advisor will allow these neighboring countries to properly calibrate not just the risks involved in opting for a last resort military intervention, but also the alternatives that would have more of a positive upside. And with that, I want to ask you just one last thing here. 
we're going into 2021 and it, it seems like there are no signs of COVID slowing down. As you might imagine, COVID has had a disastrous effect on Latin America, on Venezuela in particular. That in tandem with elections that are highly disputed, not just by the region, but by the European Union and by a majority at this point of the international community for parliamentary elections in just a month and a half away from now. Not not to make any sort of predictions here, but given the uncertainty of the state of play, what do you think now with this consideration of R2P? along with the findings of this independent fact-finding mission report, what should the international community really take away from these findings, from the situation as it stands right now, as we head into a new year where it seems like things are only going to be even more unstable than they are now, if that's even possible? Yeah, Um you know, I, I am really glad that you um to bring up this question um because it, it really gives me an opportunity to to you know also clarify uh, perhaps a, a misconception of, of R2P or or perhaps a misconception of recent discussions on, on R2P um and you know um, calls. Um look, R2P is about saving lives. It's about preventing and responding to genocide, to war crimes, crimes against humanity. The very reason that the political commitment of R2P came into being is because the international community failed to save these lives in Rwanda, in the former Yugoslavia. And sometimes the international community can very rapidly respond to such crimes and protect lives right now and right here. You know, an arms embargo for Yemen, a peacekeeping mission for uh, the Central African Republic, a no-fly zone, a humanitarian corridor in a conflict situation, uh, the protection of Syrian refugees on boats in the Mediterranean. All of these are measures which are part of R2P and a part of protecting populations, and they can have an imminent result. But in the case of Venezuela, I genuinely believe that we need to understand that there is no magic button to press. There is no activation to initiate, to put troops on the ground, to get rid of Maduro. There is no quick solution to the crisis. And this is why we are still here and, and having these conversations, right? And so I think it probably sounds incredibly simple and even cynical for someone like me. I am not in Venezuela. I am not directly affected. I don't have to queue for gasoline at 1 a.m. in the morning, and I don't go hungry at night. The suffering that Venezuelans are going through is simply unimaginable for someone who is not there. But I really believe, precisely because of how dire the situation is, that we need to be very, very honest and very careful. It is now a particular responsibility of anyone that is working on R2P, talking about R2P measures, to, you know, avoid creating unrealistic expectations or scenarios which promise a sudden imminent change in this context because it is playing with the hopes of millions of people who are truly suffering. And so again, this is really frustrating, but I really think we have to, you know, 
understand that most likely it will require long-term engagement by the international community, by regional actors, by the UN to find the solution. It's not going to be through activating the use of force or ousting the president, but it will most likely have to be through diplomatic, humanitarian, and also, you know, coercive means like targeted sanctions, accountability mechanisms, political pressure, mediation, holding perpetrators accountable and signaling them that the cost of committing atrocities are becoming too high. But again, it may take time. Right. I think you're, you're correct that it would do a disservice to Venezuelans who are on the ground and not thinking about politics, who's in power, who am I going to vote for in December? What they're thinking is, am I going to be able to eat three meals a day instead of two? And if a situation or if an alternative like that of a last resort seems untenable, then it does a disservice to promote it, as you correctly mentioned, as a magic button solution. And ultimately, I think that it's more important than anything else to promote the social welfare of the Venezuelan people that has been so severely deprived of them for for the past number of years now. And that begins with holding those individuals accountable. And it begins by having that done by the international community. It's like I always say here in this podcast, the first step in solving any problem is recognizing that there is one. The more that institutions like yours do to promote the truth of the reality of the situation on the ground, I think the more realistic of a solution we will have and the more beneficial it will be to the long-term welfare of the Venezuelan people. So with that, Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the show and just ask if you could uh, leave listeners with ways that they can find you and keep up with your work and that of the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. Yeah, with great pleasure. I mean, thanks so much, Rafael, for having me. This has been a great conversation. I'm very happy that we had uh, you know, more time than you usually have to, to get into those questions. Um, I would love if people, uh, you know, follow up with the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. You can find us at globalr2p.org. Um, we're also on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, most importantly, uh, you know, uh, I would recommend everyone that is interested, everyone that is following the situ situation in Venezuela to actually um, follow and, and, and really engage in the work of the incredible people on the ground in the country and, and outside of the country, you know, um, Venezuelan civil society um, activists, humanitarian workers who are also, you know, having, you know, such a doing such a remarkable job in, in keeping everyone updated, putting information out there, um, keeping us informed. So um, it would be fantastic for, for people, you know, to, to stay engaged, to reach out. And um, you can find us, you know, online. Uh, you can find out more about our work online. And um, yeah, you can, you can uh, inform yourself also more about the responsibility to protect what it means, where we work, what we do. Um, and of course, I'd be very, very happy to answer um, questions um, that come out of this conversation. Perfect. Yes, you can find Elizabeth on social media, on Twitter to be more precise. I'll have her social media handle 
along with links to globalr2p.org. Those links will be in the description. So please be sure to check that out. Elizabeth, thank you so much again for your time. Thanks so much, Rafael. Thanks a lot to you. Thanks again for tuning in to the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. I'll see you all in the next one.